And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The really interesting thing about James A. Baker III is that there are really two stories. One is his history as a public official, as a very consequential Secretary of State under George H.W. Bush during the period of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, as the Treasury Secretary under Ronald Reagan, who led the last genuine tax reform uh, that we've seen in 1986, and as Reagan's first chief of staff during his very eventful first term. But then there's the other Jim Baker, who was probably as hard-nosed and canny a political operative as we've seen on the national scene, certainly of his generation. He led five presidential races and famously represented George W. Bush in the uh, recount in Florida in 2000 that resulted in Bush's election as president. So much to talk about. And I sat down with Jim Baker the other day for my Axe Files TV show on CNN. Here is an expanded version of that conversation. Secretary Baker, we're here in your office at the Baker Institute at uh, Rice University, wonderful, uh, wonderful institution you started here. It is good to be with you. You know, we work different sides of the uh, political tracks. We work right. for different presidents. But, man, uh, what a record. You had five presidential campaigns you led, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary uh, of State. So I'm here for your wisdom. You're Yoda, <laughs> and I need your wisdom. What is happening in our politics today? When you watch what you're seeing in Washington what do, you, uh, what do you think? Well, I'm not sure I can tell you exactly what's happening, except it's regret- very regrettable what I see happening. I don't see our government getting things done for the people anymore. Uh, and, and that's a bipartisan thing. I'm not talking just about one party or another. And, and, and the, the people that we send up there uh, seem to go up there and spend all their time fighting with each other. Uh, you know, uh, back in the days when I was there with Reagan and Bush, uh, Ronald Reagan had a Democratic House for his two terms. George Bush had a Democratic House and Democratic Senate, and those presidents found ways to work uh, you, with uh, the Congress. You were the object of a lot of suspicion on the part of the base of the Republican Party that elected Ronald Reagan, because he also was someone who challenged the Republican establishment, and you were seen as the establishment's man uh, in the White House. Those divisions seem to be even wider uh, today. They are wider today. I was the establishment's man in the White House. I had worked for Jerry Ford. I had run two campaigns against Ronald Reagan. But you talk about broad gauge. Here's Here's a president who goes, he's so broad gaze that he, he can overlook the fact uh, that someone has run two campaigns against him and ask him to be his White House chief of staff. And it's, you know, we don't see that anymore. Uh, the objective back in those days was to get things done. Uh, that always involves, as you well know, having been in there, it involves compromise. It involves uh, sitting down and, and working things out. We don't see that happening anymore, and that's very regrettable. Now, the, there are a number of causes up for it, which I think I uh, could point to, not, no one of which is the absolute cause. But, you know, we, our, our um, redistricting has gotten 
uh, almost out of hand. If you, if you live in a state that's dominated by Republicans, you're going to create more and more safe Republican districts. If you live in a state that's dominated by Democrats, you're going to create more and more safe Democratic districts. And the center is, has, has really uh, uh, gone from American politics. Let me ask you about something that happened this week. Sure. Uh, in the Alabama Senate primary yeah. for uh, the seat that Jeff Sessions gave up to become attorney general, the president has endorsed one candidate. Steve Bannon, who was his chief strategist, uh, up until a few weeks ago, uh, went <clears throat> on the day before the election and campaigned for the other candidate. Right. Could you have imagined such a thing no. uh, in, in your day? No, I couldn't. And no. what does it say to you about uh, the coherence of the party itself and the ability to govern? Because they seem to be uh, running a campaign, at least the, the, uh, the, the, the Bannonites, uh, against the Senate Majority Leader, who's a Republican. Well, I think that's a big mistake, of course, but uh, <laughs> parties need to unify in order to get things done. Party, the party structure is never uh, really strong. I mean, I, I think that happens on both sides, that, that uh, the parties are not what they used to be back in the early uh, 1900s or the 1800s. But uh, they're still very important. But I can't conceive of a situation where uh, someone w would work in uh, Reagan or George Bush's White House at a high level and then go out and campaign against uh, a candidate that the president had endorsed. I bet you you can't. Uh, no, it wouldn't have either in your in your White House. No. no. Uh, so it's very it's very unusual. Uh, uh, but there are how would you of, feel about if you were the president? That, that a lot of things are. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't feel particularly good about it. I would say, hey, wait a minute, pal. I gave you a chance to come into the White House and, uh, and sit uh, at, a, at a very high level in the, in the American government. And I'm, I wouldn't ask too much of you, but I would ask uh, that much loyalty from you. I know that you are uh, you're a master diplomat and you can be very diplomatic. But I want to ask you, you had a rule when you were the White House Chief of Staff, and that was don't start any fights you can't win and win all the fights that you start. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the operative theory in this White House. Well, I don't think it is the operative theory. Now, why that is, I can't tell you, except that uh, I think this president has uh, had, a, had a career uh, of... Uh, accomplishment that required him to strike back at his opponents. And so you never see a situation where he isn't going to want to hit back at someone that he thinks has wronged him. I think, as a matter of fact, that that could make it a lot, a lot more difficult to get anything done. Uh, you need uh, the you need the congressional leadership if you're going to get legislation. And we judge our presidents uh, by what they have, by what the, uh, which, by how much of their policy goals they accomplish and and uh, and move into law, so it's very difficult to conceive of getting a lot done if the if your own party leadership in the Congress is opposed to you. One of the things that you got done uh, with President Reagan was probably the only genuine tax reform uh, since the income tax was implemented in 1913, uh, back in 1986. 
How did you pull that off? And do you think it's possible today to do it again? Because, you know, they're talking about it again. In yeah, they are talking about it. Uh, and, and there have been statements that have come out of there saying, well, we'll get this done by August or we'll get this done by July. We'll get it done by the fall. It's hard if you're talking about really comprehensive tax reform. Now, you can reduce the corporate rate and call it tax reform, and the corporate rate needs to be reduced. we got the highest one in the world. And that, I think, can get done. But to broaden the base, get rid of uh, uh, loopholes and deductions and lower marginal rates, which is what we did in 86, is extremely difficult. Because uh, whatever you do, somebody's ox is going to get gored. And we did it with Democrat, with, with Republicans and Democrats together. We had a Democratic House. The legislation had to start in ways and meanings, ways and means. So we got a, a, a Democrat, Democratic bill passed. Rostenkowski, Danny Rostenkowski, my great friend from and Chicago. I know, yes, I know he's from from your hometown. Yeah. He, and he was he was a great guy, and and uh, we cooperated, and we got. But but it was a Democratic bill, and our House Republicans uh, didn't want to vote for it, and and they rebelled against President Reagan. And it was not until President Reagan went up to the hill and sat down with them and finally got them to agree, okay, f- vote for this bill. When it gets to the Senate, we'll fix it. And if we don't fix it, I'll veto it or we won't pass it. We finally got that, that message through. But there, that was a really good example, I think, of bipartisan cooperation to get something accomplished uh, for the American people. You sent Reagan up there. And uh, you were telling me before we started chatting about uh, his remarks, he actually didn't talk much about tax reform. No, he didn't talk at all about tax reform. But let me correct you in one one respect. I didn't send Reagan up there. The president agreed to go up there. And he did did an extraordinary job. Uh, We just had a a big... uh, very tragic accident, I think at Fort Myer, one of our military installations killed a lot of, of servicemen, and President Reagan went up there to the House Republican Caucus. Now, bear in mind, they had beat us on the rule. Dick Cheney and Trent Lott and these guys came down to my office at the Treasury and said, this is a bad bill, it's a Democratic bill, we're not going to support it, we're going to beat you on it. I said, fellas, you're at the wrong White House. The White House you need to go to is across the street here because the Gipper wants to do this, and we're going to try and do it. So they'd beaten us on the rule. and he Meaning went, of the procedural step procedural, to get the bill on the floor. To get it passed, yeah. If we, if we, it looked like they were, they were in a position to tube the whole effort. So the president went up there, and he spent, he spent the first 40 minutes uh, talking about the tragic accident at Fort Myer and how many and the wonderful uh, brave American uh, men and women who'd been killed and so forth and so on, and then at the, after about 34 minutes he said, "And now, fellas," he said, "I want to talk to you about uh, the tax bill." And there was not a dry eye <laughs> in the house, <laughs> and uh, and we got the bill passed through the House, a Democratic bill, and we did fix it in the Senate, and it helped the country. You know, I work for a president who uh, also was very charismatic, an inspiring speaker. Uh, And when he was trying to pass difficult legislation, the health care bill being one of them, he would go up and speak to the caucus. He never had text in front of him. It was just him. And and Reagan was, it sounds like, the same, that he just went in the room 
and uh, and let it. Well, oftentimes Reagan would use note cards, but not on the, not on these kind of occasions. He, yeah. he was he was a wonderful communicator. As yeah, you know. underestimated. I think there's this sense that he That's read right. that he read speeches well. No, no, he wrote them. As he well. wrote those speeches, and there's a sense that uh, he. And by the way, he wrote a lot of his letters. Yes, to, I, I've still got the rough draft in his own handwriting of uh, his letter to Brezhnev. Um, uh, uh, lifting the grain embargo on, on the Soviet Union. I mean, he did a lot of this on his own. He, one of the secrets, I think, to Ronald Reagan's political success is that he was consistently underestimated. And as you know, as a good politician, uh, exceeding expectations is the key in politics. And he knew he was. Yeah. Uh, yep. I, on, the, on the subject of letters, uh, the... Uh, Abraham Lincoln had a habit of uh, when he wrote a letter in anger, he would stick it in the drawer mm-hmm. and he would not uh, and he would look at it a week later and decide whether he actually wanted to send yeah. the letter. We live in the age of Twitter now, yeah. and the president is an active participant on Twitter. Uh, how, how do you evaluate that in terms of his abilities? as a president to get stuff done is well uh, a lot of people will tell you they think it's counterproductive it of course has worked for him in the private sector which is why he does it well and in the campaign and in the campaign it worked for him uh, which is why he continues to do it it's a little, uh, you know running the government running a business and running the government are, are two entirely different uh, undertakings uh, the one thing that I would uh, worry about if I were one of his senior uh, officials would be uh, not not knowing until 2.30 or 3 in the morning when you see the most recent twit, <laughs> tweet, sorry, uh, what, what the policy was. Because when a president of the United States speaks, he speaks policy. He's yes. creating policy. He's yes. making policy. But it worked for him. Uh, in the campaign, it worked for him in business. Uh, who's to say it won't work? But it, I, I will tell you this, if, if I were Secretary of State, it would make my job a lot harder, or Secretary of Defense, or whatever whatever official it, it might be. Yeah. That's not to say that it, that it won't work for him. It may very well. Well, you were, uh, you were Secretary of State, so put your Secretary of State hat on, and you just you sort of uh, implied this. Um, let's take North Korea as an example. He's been in a pretty brisk exchange of taunts with Kim Jong-un, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. ruler of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you as Secretary of State uh, advise him? And is this a good path to take? Do you have it to- could be, but it depends on what else is, what gonna, what else is gonna come with it. There's nothing wrong with with uh, knocking this guy, even though when the President of the United States does it personally himself, it sort of builds the guy up bigger than he in, than he's entitled to be, in my view. I got a I got a solution for North Korea, but it's, <laughs> I, I don't know whether we'll ever whether we'll ever get there. But what I think what I think we ought to do is send up send someone who, who is uh, who is well respected by the Chinese government and who. Uh, can speak to them on a very private and confidential basis. I know I'm talking about it here publicly, but but you could do it privately and confidentially. It'll have to be someone who can get in and out of there without, uh, he can't have all the fanfare and so forth of a, of a government official. 
and sit down with the Chinese and say, hey, you know, you don't, you don't want a nuclear uh, Korean Peninsula, and they don't, and they don't like what this guy is doing there, and we don't want it. So why don't we, why don't we make this agreement? We, the United States, will support any government you put in North Korea, install in North Korea, that, re- that renounces nuclear weapons, that, that, that won't seek to develop them or maintain them. And we will agree with you that if, you, if, you, if that happens, we will sign a peace treaty ending the Korean War. And we will agree we won't uh, station nukes on, in South Korea on the Korean Peninsula. And you, and you get rid of this flake. And he is a flake. So I, I don't see anything wrong with the president calling attention to the fact that he's flaky. But, but that's the kind Do you think he's pushing them to the point where there could be a misunderstanding? Well, I hope there wouldn't be, but I don't think, I, I don't think that it's, uh, I don't think it's a case of our president pushing that, that you don't need to push him very far. Look what he's doing. He's firing off these missiles over, over Japan into, and, and violating their airspace and everything. And he's doing it very provocatively, and the Chinese don't like it either. Nobody likes what he's doing. Everybody opposes this. So I, 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 I just on the tweet question itself, I, I totally identify with you as someone who worked for uh, a president. I don't think I would sleep <laughs> if uh, my president were tweeting policy uh, at all hours of the day and night. Because, and I asked Sean Spicer uh, right before he took the job mm-hmm. about this, and he was about to become press secretary. I said, mm-hmm. do you know what he's going to tweet? He's, he said, no. Mm-hmm. And I said, how do you sleep? He said, I sleep okay, but I get up very early and look at my phone to see what the story of the day is going to be. That's correct. No, that's correct. Yeah. And so, and you know, it's, it, it's like a campaign. It's like running the government's not unlike running a campaign. There needs to be message discipline. Now, the president is the one who's going to set the message. So you, I suppose you can have message discipline that begins at 5 a.m. and runs through that day. But... Uh, in a campaign, if you don't have message discipline, you, you, you may not win. And running the government, it's important to have message. Well, and in fact, government, yes, it, there are elements of campaign uh, discipline that's necessary in government. You brought that to the Reagan White House. There were plenty of people who wanted him to take up issues that were not the major issues right. that he needed to get done. And you were pretty steadfast in standing up. That was one of the reasons why con- the conservatives thought you were... That's correct. Yeah. Not letting Reagan be Reagan. How yes. insulting is that? But you hear that now. Don't let let Trump be Trump. That's what you hear from the Bannonites. Mm, I haven't heard much of that, but we sure heard it back there in in my day. And and you know here these were supposed to be the the strongest, most steadfast supporters of the president, and they're saying that he's subject to being controlled by uh, his chief of staff or something. I mean. But there does have to be a message discipline. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with my conversation with former Secretary of State Jim Baker. It strikes me even today, and maybe more so today, that um, if you were to kind of look for the... You would be like a poster child for what uh, this activist Republican base hates... You know, you, you believe in global institutions, uh, you believe in trade, 
You believe in climate change. You, you believe in uh, a oh, resolution. Oh, no, no, you go too far there. I, <laughs> I think the climate may be changing, but I, I do not have any idea the extent to which a man is responsible for it. And by the way, I and some of my fellow conservatives have come with a very good uh, proposal uh, involving a carbon tax with dividends back to the American people so it doesn't grow the government. But I understand what you're saying. And... Uh, and yes, that's... Does it bother you? No. Does it bother me that I would be a poster child? For, no. for, for, for the group that, that really no, is... No, no, because while, while, they're, while they're for those things you said, and I may be in a different position, they're also for getting things done. And what, what we were able to do in, in, in Ronald Reagan's administration and George H.W. Bush's administration is get things done for the American people. They're for tax reform. They are for, uh, they're for health care reform. They're for some solution to the immigration problem. So they're for these things uh, which are not getting done. So can, can you get things done? Can you make deals anymore in Washington? You know, the president made a, a couple of deals with Pelosi yeah. and Schumer. Yeah. Uh, that created a little bit of... Uh, uh, a little bit of uneasiness uh, among his base. I assume you would think that was a good thing. I do. I do. I, I, if you're going to govern uh, in Washington, D.C., if you're going to get things accomplished, you're going to end up at some point having to do, having to reach across the aisle to make it happen. And so uh, without judging the specifics of those deals he made with Schumer and Pelosi, I think that is a good deal. What's wrong with, uh, uh, with getting things done in a bipartisan way? That was one of the keys to the success of Ronald Reagan's presidency and George Bush's presidency. Yeah, but you see absolutism on, on both sides. You sure do. And it's not, by the way, I said a minute ago redistricting, but there are other reasons that uh, you could pinpoint, too. One, you know, our, our representatives no longer take their families up to Washington. When I was up there, there was a lot of socializing across uh, party lines. You don't have that anymore. That's regrettable. You also today have <laughs> the Internet and, and you have a <clears throat> media that are no longer objective observers and reporters of the facts. They're players. And divisiveness sells. Comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, doesn't sell. And so you see more and more of this. And I think those are all reasons why our polity has degenerated into what it is today. You were in the White House uh, during uh, one of the most dramatic and uh, uh, unsettling events uh, of recent history, and that was the assassination attempt uh, on, right. on President Reagan. You were only there for 70 days as chief of staff when this happened. Uh, recall for me what that was like. I, I can't imagine sitting in the White House and getting that news. Well, <laughs> it, was, it was devastating news, of course, because we didn't know, first of all, whether the president had been hit. The first reports were he hadn't been hit. Then we get a report that he's not only been hit, he's on his way to George Washington Hospital. So we left the White House and, and went right to the hospital. And, and the president, of course, never lost his sense of humor. You know, the, the quips that he gave us. They wheeled him in on the gurney and he looked at the doctors and said, I hope you're all Republicans. 
And then Nancy shows up and she looks at her and says, honey, I'm sorry, I forgot to duck. Were you there Look, then? When yeah, you- yeah, I went to the hospital immediately. I, I had not gone on the event to the event. I got Mike Deaver, the deputy chief of staff, to take my place uh, because I had a lot of stuff I had to do in the White House. So I didn't go to the event. You were supposed to go. You might, I was supposed you might to have go. been right in the line of fire. I might have so. been. I might very well have been. Poor Jim Brady got uh, got shot in the, in the press secretary. In the head, the press secretary, yeah. Um, and uh, what ensued over the next uh, 24 hours was <clears throat> questions about protocol, who was in charge. Uh, there was a newly uh, enacted 25th Amendment. Yeah. Uh, and you could have, uh, you could have uh, declared them in, in, in capacity. We could have invoked the 25th Amendment. We, we made it. I, I may have made a a mistake here. I got I got criticized for it in the aftermath, but I don't think it was a mistake. I concluded that we ought not to invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment. The doctors had told us they were going that that they were going to take the president into surgery. They're going to remove this bullet, and that he would be uh, he would be under anesthesia for maybe four or five hours. Uh, and so Ed Meese and I, who was uh, a counselor to the president and had been his chief of staff in, in California, and I decided in a, in a broom closet in George Washington Hospital that we wouldn't invoke the 25th Amendment. Why? Because I, I, was, I was in favor of not invoking it because I had been George Bush's campaign manager. I had the vice president. The vice president. And President Reagan had asked me then to be his chief of staff, something, by the way, that I don't think will ever happen again in American politics. But I was viewed with some suspicion by some uh, of the Reagan uh, people because I'd run, a, I'd run these two campaigns against the Reagan, one for Ford and then one for George Bush. And... And I just thought it would look like uh, a usurpation of power. Vice President Bush was not in favor of it, as best I know. He was in Texas flying back. And so we, we opted not to do it. The president was operated on, came out in good shape four or five hours later, and that's, that's the story. But there was another part of the story, which was sec- the Secretary of State, Al Haig, was at the White House and uh, famously showed up in the... In the, yeah, uh, and misstated the uh, order of succession of the presidency in the event of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would have happened if something had uh, had happened, uh, some dramatic well, an attack? Well, we, had to be made while well, the president what, was under. What would have happened is we would have quickly invoked the Twenty Fifth Amendment and transferred power to the vice president. I see. But this, politically. It was, no, I understand. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. So we would have transferred. But it, it speaks to how fraught. The relationships were you were not you were trying to win trust of people who didn't necessarily Look, trust when, you. Mies was much more aligned with that. Absolutely, no, no. He well, he'd been his chief of staff in California, but it was really important that I prove that my loyalty was with Ronald Reagan, and uh, because my loyalty theretofore had been. A, against him, and B, substantially with George Bush, yes. who was my longtime friend and so forth. So that, that was the, that's how that decision happened to get made. But it could have been reversed. We could have implemented it very, very quickly. Speaking of Mies, uh, one of the things that uh, really intrigued me, having worked in a White House, was that you cut a deal with Ed Mies when you became chief of staff. 
a written agreement as to what everybody's authorities and responsibilities were. Uh, I noticed when I read the document, and it's a fascinating document, mm-hmm. that you derogated to yourself the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, authority to appoint, the authority uh, over the president's schedule, the authority over what paper came in and out of yeah. the Oval Office. It struck me that you took every responsibility that went to actual control of well, I took the politi- I'm giving you credit, man. I think it was a great deal. <laughs> I took the political side of the White House. Ed wanted to be in policy. And by the way, let me tell you something. I have no better friend, uh, really, than Ed Meese. I put him on the Iraq Study Group and on the War Powers Commission that I co-chaired with uh, Warren Christopher. He's a He's a wonderful person and a close friend. Yes, there were tensions in our White House between his his so-called camp and mine, but it all worked well for the Gipper. I mean, he got all sorts of views. On this uh, document you're talking about, what happened was the day at morning, the night of the election, when we found out we'd won, President Reagan said, Jim, before you go back to Texas, I want to talk to you. And so I went to see him, and he said, I would like you to be uh, my chief of the next morning. I'd like you to be my chief of staff, but make it right with Ed. Because Ed had been chief of staff in California. Everybody assumed he was going to be the chief of staff. And so I called Ed, and he was obviously uh, down about the decision. And I said, let's go to breakfast. And we went to breakfast, and he wanted to be, uh, he wanted to be in charge of policy. And I said, okay, I'll be in charge of politics and and, uh, making the trains run on time. And that's what that document is. Yeah, but the truth is that when you make, I mean, you're talking to a guy who spent time in the White House, so I know how (laughs) things work. The guy who makes the trains run on time has a lot to say about everything, including policy, because what the president sees and what the president does really reflects his priorities. Well, most and you knew that. Most importantly, uh, press, communications, and Congress. Because uh, Congress, you've got to, you, you got to get, if you're going to get your policies implemented into law with any permanence, executive orders work great, that's great, but they can be undone right. as we're seeing right yes. now. Your executive orders are being undone. By the well, they weren't mine, president. but... No, no, I mean but your president's, <laughs> your president's executive My executive orders weren't worth much. <laughs> no, <laughs> your, your president's executive orders. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I had to let... And so we created the legislative strategy group. So, as you know, uh, the process of governing is constant, uh, con- uh, compromise here and there, particularly with Congress, if you want to get stuff passed. So we should stop right there. That is the theory, but we haven't seen a lot of compromise lately. No, no, we haven't, and that's what we what I said earlier is, mm-hmm. is regrettable about our polity now. But Ed was on that uh, legislative strategy group. I was. There were other people, and so when stuff would. You know, you operating in real. You're operating in a very short time frame. Yes. So when word would come down from the hill, we can't get this done without Senator So and So's amendment on such and such. You got to make decisions pretty much like that, and that's where those decisions were made. And so it's great to formulate policy. It's wonderful. To, and he was in charge of formulating, but you got to implement it. Mm-hmm. And it was the implementation that uh, that my side of the White House had had control of. There was one, uh, there was one uh, incident that you've written about that I thought was pretty interesting that spoke to how, f- how fraught relations were. And in any White House, there are tensions. But 
uh, where uh, the uh, National Security Advisor suggested that all of you take polygraph yeah. tests to yeah. see uh, if you were guilty of leaking. Leak. That didn't sit well with you. No. Well, first of all, President had given me specific, specifically given me in an order the authority to order polygraphs if they were going to be ordered or to recommend to the Justice Department and so forth. And so that, w- and that was done uh, without my knowledge. And I was on my way to lunch uh, in downtown. I got word of it and I turned the car around and I walk- and walked back in the Oval and the president was having lunch with the vice president and secretary of state at that time, George Schultz. And uh, he'd ordered this... Uh, this uh, polygraph on anybody who was in a particular NSC being meeting, the president, the, pres- mm-hmm. the president had, uh, on the recommendation of his national security advisor, Bill Clark. And, uh, and of course, it didn't make any sense at all to do that. What do you, you, you can't strap up, you're going to strap up the vice president of the United States. He's a constitutional officer. And George Shultz quickly said, well, Mr. President, I'll take the lie detector test if that's what you want, but it'll be the last thing I do as your secretary of state. And the president didn't realize that he that this was a mistake, and it, it never should have gone to him uh, through a Bill Clark. The authority for that was something that was in my in my court in the White House. You know, watching what's happening in the White House now, John Kelly came in, General Kelly, yeah, and uh, it seems like he's following sort of the Baker rules of organization. Did he consult with you at all? Have you he, spoken John, with him? General Kelly called me after he was appointed, and we had a, we had a very cordial and, and, uh, and friendly, a, a very substantive, I think, conversation. Not, not too long, but, but long enough. I think he's doing a really good job. It is a hard job. Uh, given the president's uh, personality and and, uh, and the way he, he has always run things, he he ran his business uh, by himself with you know he and so he, that's the way he uh, approaches governance. And so General Kelly's got he, but he had I think the president has empowered General Kelly, whereas he didn't empower Reince Priebus. And no chief of staff can be effective unless he's empowered. And one of the first things General Kelly did was to cut off access to the Oval by anybody just walking in there. They had to go through him. And that's a very important uh, procedure. You, uh, you mentioned earlier that your wife had died when um, you were relatively young. But you came to politics after that. You were... Older, I was five when John F. Kennedy came to my little housing development in New York City mm-hmm. campaigning, and I thought, this is the coolest thing yeah. ever. This is what I want to be involved in. Yeah. Uh, you had no notion of no, a career I, in I politics. No, in fact, I, in fact, I expressly, I'd been advised by uh, my grandfather's mantra, if you want to be a good lawyer, work hard, study, and stay out of politics. And for <laughs> 40 years of my life, I stayed out of politics. And then my wife got sick. The last people to see her, <coughs> other than family, before she died were George and Barbara Bush came to see her. Uh, we were close friends. And, um, but, and George came to me after she died and said, Bake, you gotta, uh, you got to get your mind off your grief. Help me run for the Senate here in Texas. I said, well, George, that's great, except I don't know anything about politics, and I'm a Democrat. 
he said, well, we can change that, uh, that last thing. And, uh, and I changed uh, to become Of course, Texas Democrats were different than... In those days, yeah, I, I was really a Republican philosophically. You just didn't know it. Conservative, well, we, <laughs> conservative Democrats, which is what I was, were really Republicans. And it was shortly thereafter that, we, that they began to vote Republican. And now, of course, as you know, Texas is a solidly Republican state. Let, let me ask you a tough question. You know, one of the things that I, I mean, I, love, I loved every minute of what, uh, and you know, there's nothing yeah. as exhilarating no. as a campaign yeah. for president of the yeah. United States. Nothing as exhilarating as that or serving in the White House. Right. But I look back on my life and I think, the one regret I have is is the sacrifice that I my family had to make yeah. uh, for that. You you were a young widowed uh, father of four, and uh, you got remarried a few years later. But and that, then you had a family of eight uh, right. kids. Um, but you spent a lot of the next many decades yeah. on the road. Do you look back at that? With yeah. regret, how how much of a sacrifice yes. was that for your family? Well, it was a big sacrifice. And I, I wrote that in my book. It, it's the families that uh, that that really sacrifice. And I didn't, you know, I had these uh, these beautiful eight kids, and I didn't get to spend enough time with them because I was flying all. Over. First of all, I was uh, running doing these campaigns. Then I then I became deputy secretary of commerce for President Ford, and then I turned right around and. Ran my own race. By the way, I, I got smart. I, I got smart enough to know the best way best way to get to a, a high high office is not to run for it, is to get appointed to it. I ran for Attorney General of Texas and, and lost, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me because if I'd won, I'd have been stuck down here in Texas and never gotten to go to Washington. But yes, it you, you your family suffers. Everybody thinks it's uh, it's glorious and and full of pomp and circumstance and fun. It's hard work, and you do sacrifice on the family level. In fact, your uh, your second wife your uh, uh, cried the night that Ronald Reagan called you and said he wanted to talk to you after the 1980 election. Exactly. They weren't tears of joy, were they? No, they weren't. That's exactly what happened. He said, Jim, I want to talk to you before you go back to Texas. And I told her that, and she started crying. And then the next, and I told the president-elect that the next day, and he took me over in the corner, and he said, let me tell you something, Susan. He said, I think family is extremely important. Your man's going to be home at 5 o'clock every afternoon. <laughs> I wasn't home at 5 o'clock any afternoon. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a lie that every president tells some, some <laughs> high staffer's wife yeah. or husband yeah. uh, when trying to pitch them to join the administration. There's no way no. that you become in, in, enveloped uh, in these things. Well, it's a 24-7 job, as you know, when you're in the White House, and particularly if you're chief of staff of the White House. I did. I worked on. I worked all day Saturdays and, and Sunday mornings. I mean, it was a six and a half day a week. We're going to take another short break, and I'll be right back with Jim Baker. You, um, I know that uh, I, when I when I think about your history and read your biography, I think of that. Um, scene in The Godfather Part 3 when Michael Corleone says, every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in again. <laughs> because you had, uh, you, you became Secretary of Treasury, and then George H.W. Uh, Bush, George uh, uh, Bush 41, 41, called you back mm -hmm. uh, because you were the best. You were the best in the Republican Party 
at running campaigns, and he knew that he had a tough campaign. You didn't, you didn't want to he do call, it. He called me back because I was his friend of 40 years, because he was my daughter's uh, godfather, and because I had run all of his prior uh, campaigns. I'm not, not all of them, but the ones for, for president. And that's the reason I think. Because it's a big ask to, to say, come back from yeah. being Secretary of Treasury, be my Chief of Staff and de facto campaign. Well, and then, and then the same thing uh, with state. Mm-hmm. Yes, when you had to come back in 72. Uh, no, well, in 92. In 92, yes, 92. Let me uh, ask you about, um, about, that about that 1988 campaign. Um, 88? 88 campaign. Yeah. Uh, because... You know, I always point to that campaign, and I, I, I'm not saying this judgmentally. It was a, uh, it was a, there was a brilliant negative campaign run. I know you recoil from that in your book, but the truth of the matter is, as a practitioner, uh, you guys were 17 points behind uh, in the summer of uh, right. 1988, mm -hmm. and uh, embarked on a campaign that Roger Ailes oversaw, an advertising campaign. The, the advertising was Roger. Yes, and it was uh, it was brutal and it was effective and and uh, uh, one of those ads uh, and uh, an outside group ad was about this issue. Uh, outside group. I understand. I understand. Uh, the, the 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 Willie Horton ad was an outside ad, but right. there was a companion ad that was being run by the campaign on that had no um, attacking Governor Dukakis on a furlough program. Prison furlough program. And right. that ad of our of our campaign did not have African Americans in it in a revolving door. Uh, I went back and looked at it. There, there actually is one. It was there an integrated one. group, but okay. there was a, there is an okay. African American in that ad. But the Willie Horton ad was very searing, uh, and it ran about the same time. Um, and it clearly was. Uh, you said in the book that there was a backlash, but it was effective, and it was a play. Uh, on race. I mean, Lee Atwater. Well, guess who wrote wrote them a letter and told them to stop it? Me. Yeah. And they stopped it. Yeah. But now, a after a few but, weeks. But David, I I know you know I admire what you did in your campaign, and you were very very effective. But look, <coughs> Michael Dukakis in a debate when he was asked if he if if uh, if someone broke into his house, murdered his wife, and raped her, if he would then support the death penalty, and he said no. We didn't have anything to do with that. No, I understand. I'm not, and, and listen, I've thrown hard punches in my career, so I'm not, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the issue uh, of race. Lee Atwater, who was a great uh, political uh, okay. tactician yeah. and was, the, was, was one of your, uh, he was manager before you came back. He was really central to that campaign, said uh, when he was, uh, when he was uh, dying some years after that, that he regretted that, and he said uh, he regretted saying, I would we're going to strip the bark off of the little bastard and make Willie Horton his running mate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, look, politics very, very ain't beanbag. Colorful, very colorful language. Politics, politics ain't, ain't beanbag. Ain't I understand beanbag. that. The reason I raise it now, and the other issue that came up in that campaign was the American flag, and because uh, Dukakis had vetoed a piece of legislation that would have compelled teachers to Which is not, a, really, lead, not lead. a particularly smart political move. Right. Wouldn't Even, you agree? I, I would certainly agree with that. Wouldn't you also agree that putting on that goofy-looking helmet and yes, riding yes. around in that tank? I am not here to. I'm not nothing to do. Not here to suggest that Dukakis' campaign was a model of uh, strategic uh, uh, achievement, but. The flag, race, uh, it seems very current right now. 
because the president has started this, uh, uh, has, has picked up this issue yeah, about but, Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, the, it is racially tinged, the flag and race. Uh, you guys uh, use this as a tactic to win a campaign, but you didn't raise these issues when the president was in office. It, it wasn't the themes that he picked up and took into office. Do you have concerns well, about sure, the tone? He, he sure took the, t- the flag issue into office. Yeah, but no, no, everybody supports the flag. Let's, let's, uh, let's uh, assert that. But my, my, I'm just trying to trace back sort of this issue of uh, the manipulation of these kinds of very, very incendiary things. And does it concern you uh, that the president is spending his time on these things now? Well, I, I think it's important to get immigration reform, health care reform, tax reform. Those are the things that I think he ought to be spending his time on. And, and I'm not saying... Is this a distraction from that? I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not in that White House. Ask that question to General Kelly. <laughs> well, you speak to him more than I do. Who is, you should ask him that who question. Is, no, who has been empowered, ask him that question. But, but you know, uh, I think this issue that we're, we're confronting today, I, I watched Monday Night Football last night. Yes. I thought it was handled very, very well by both teams, by the NFL. They, they went out, they showed unity with all their players, took a knee, but not during the national anthem, not to denigrate our country and our flag. I mean, this, I just think it's outrageous. There are plenty of ways that you can, that you can um, call into question some of the racism that may still exist in this country, but that's the wrong way to do it. You don't, you, you don't, uh, denigrate the one thing that that used to, and I hope it still will unify us, is that we're all Americans. I think identity politics ha- is really bad, David. I, and I know we play, we, we play it, and you play it. Uh, and I think that's one of these prob- one of the problems that's affected our polity. Uh-huh. We ought to get away from identity politics. We're all Americans. It isn't part of the. Uh isn't part of what being an American means. I mean, I'm the son of an immigrant, so my father came here from so Eastern Europe. So am I. But, uh, and uh, he, uh, he came here because he had the freedom to worship as he pleased yeah. and to think as he pleased right. and, and to express himself. Colin Kaepernick was expressing a sentiment that many, many people in the community feel about uh, injustice, about the uh, uh, problems within our criminal justice system that are deeply felt, and he drew attention to them. He made clear that he wasn't uh, protesting the military, uh, the flag. He was exercising the rights that the flag You can't offered. tell me that not standing up for the national anthem with your hand over your heart is not denigrating the national anthem with the flag it is. Well, I mean, there are plenty of ways for him to protest. Yeah, but he, he, he chose a way that was effective because it, it brought to uh, light a, a way in which we aren't meeting our national, uh, our national values, our, uh, the, the, the meeting of the flag. Well, I, you know, I, we, could, we, we don't have time, but we could sit here and argue that all day. You were you you are a, a very effective campaign manager and, and, uh, and White House uh, assistant. 
to the first African American president yes. of the country with an African American attorney general, two of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, and to say we're not making progress in race relations, come on. I didn't say we're I, not making progress. I chaired a committee. I didn't say I that. Chaired, I, no, I didn't no, say that, Mr. No, Secretary. No. I know we are. I've felt it. I see it. But if you're a, if you're a, if you're a, a person on the uh, the streets of the inner cities of our country, sure, there's you, 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 you're in a different position than, than an Eric Holder or, or Barack Obama, and they would be the first granted, to say so. Granted, granted. I guess what I'm getting to is, you know, uh, I, I worked very collaboratively with President Jimmy Carter when I was Secretary of State. We would never have been able to, to end the wars in, in uh, El Salvador and Nicaragua had it not been for uh, Jimmy Carter. He and I uh, were asked to co-chair a presidential uh, commission on a federal election reform. And we proposed, get this now, we proposed voter I, photo ID to yeah. vote. And you, and you know why? Because President Carter said, and I totally agreed, if a, per, if a minority has a government-issued photo ID, very few voting registrars are ever going to try to deny them the right to vote. But now... You'd think that voter ID, photo IDs to vote were the worst thing uh, in, in the world. That's bad that we've that we've done that. I mean, well, let me let me let me back up for a second, and just put a button on this because I want to ask you about a few other things <laughs> okay. here. We could yeah. talk about this. Yeah, we could all day. Um, you said both sides play identity politics. Yeah. Were, were you guys playing identity politics in '88 when you, when the Willie Horton? I I, I I don't think we were, but you but a lot of people do. And if we were, we were not doing anything that you all don't do either on your side. Yeah. So, um, and look, like I said, there there aren't all there are no angels in this very very hard scrabble it's arena hard, that you and I have both uh, chosen. Yeah. But um, reflecting back and on the nature of our campaigns, um, especially in this media age. Uh, do we contribute to the coarsening of uh, our politics uh, when we play the game? Winning is the thing. You can't govern if you don't win. You're very good at winning, and you're good at governing. Uh, but is there something that uh, we have to take responsibility for in terms of the, the nature of our debates? Well, I think so. But if you compare our debates, our political debates today, with those of the 18th, uh, 19th century, they're, they're mild by comparison. In many respects. Let me ask you about another thing that you were involved in. Yeah. Uh, in 2000, you were summoned by George W. Bush when the recount happened in um, Florida. Yeah. <clears throat> you, uh, there's a, there was a movie, Recount, you probably saw it. I think Tom Wilkerson, the brilliant British actor, yeah. played you. Yeah. Uh, and he played you as a, a, a brilliant uh, kind of... Uh, very, very cunning operative. And I noticed in your book, and it, by the way, I thought it was a great, great, I mean, flattering depiction, but uh, I noticed um, in your book you said, Flora, ultimately Flora was a political battle, and we realized that, and the other side yeah. didn't. Explain that to me. I understand it, but explain it a little bit. Well, I think that it, uh, well, first of all, I, I wasn't summoned until after Al Gore had 
had said that he was going to put Warren Christopher in charge of the recall. One of your counterparts, another yeah, former, former, former Secretary of State. State. So George Bush, I think, Governor Bush at the time, said, well, we got our own Secretary of State, so he called me. Except your sec- his Secretary of State, you were one of the smartest political guys around. You understood message, you understood... Well, it was a political exercise. You you know that as a good politician. It was a political... Yeah, there was a large uh, element of of, uh, legality to it. I mean, we... I don't know how many uh, lawsuits were filed, but there were uh, a whole lot of them, and for 37 days there in Florida, we didn't know who was going to win these lawsuits or who was going to be ultimately the president of the United States. And I don't think we'll ever find a time, David, where we, where a presidential election is decided by 537 votes in in one state. I always uh, remind people of that because when people say, well, my vote doesn't matter. Yeah, good for you. It does matter. And that's the prime example of that. That was an election in which the uh, the loser got more popular votes than the winner. We've now had another in 2016. Yeah, uh, the Electoral College, you, you, you support it. I do very strongly, and I can tell you why if you want me yes. to. Yes. Well, it's a, it was a solemn uh, pact by our founders. The, the, the small states gave up their sovereignty and joined the Union because they were promised a special say in the election of the chief executive and an equal say in the upper body of the Congress. So that's why we have the Electoral College. And people say, we've got to get rid of the Electoral College. We're, not, we're never going to get rid of the Electoral College because the small, you've got to do it with a constitutional amendment. And the small, right, states, that's the reality. small states are never going to give up that power, and they shouldn't. It was, the, it, was, it was a solemn bargain that was struck at the time the nation was formed. One of those people who said we ought to get rid of it was uh, the man who's sitting in the White House right now about three weeks before the election when he said the Electoral College was rigged against him. And I think a lot of Democrats thought that, too. There were a lot of Democrats talking about the blue wall uh, that fell but it does it does i'm sure the world looks at us and says how can one candidate get more votes than the other and the other candidate win i mean is that a challenge for our democracy no we've done pretty damn well for 200 years with the electoral college let me ask you one last thing about uh, uh campaigns you uh, you wrote uh, about you, you've been very tough in, uh, in criticizing special counsels, independent counsels. <laughs> you felt that uh, a, an independent counsel may have cost you guys the presidential race in 1976 when, uh, yeah, when Gerald Ford lost narrowly to Jimmy Carter because there was a special counsel investigation right. of Ford that didn't yeah. come back until late October. You felt and, that and by the way, we only lost that Ford Carter race by ten thousand votes. Yes, out of, but, but out of eighty-one million. Yeah, no, no, I know that was yeah. quite a race. Yeah, uh, uh, President Bush in nineteen seventy-two uh, was touched by a special counsel indictment of Casper Weinberger, the former defense yeah, secretary, which much. broke right before the election. Right. Yeah, uh, and uh, but. The reason I ask, obviously, is we have a special counsel now. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's appropriate that, that, that this special counsel investigation is appropriate, or would you just uh, do away with all of that? Well, there's a significant difference between this special counsel and the independent counsel law that we used to have. Yes, which, uh, which, which President Clinton re-extended uh, and then became subject to one. The independent counsel ha- was... was, was answerable to no one. 
this counsel is answerable. He's answerable to the Justice Department and ultimately to the President. So it's, it's a significant difference. I, I don't. I, I hate to see us in this country get into the business of of trying to uh, indict uh, our leaders. We've never done that before. And, and under the under the, the circumstances that I mean, we're not a banana republic, is what I mean. Right. Okay. But on the other hand, we're a nation of laws. And of course we are. Of course we are. Is it awkward that the president has authority over a council who's investigating him? I don't, I don't know whether it's awkward or not. It's the way our system uh, works. And it, it, there's no questioning that authority. It's like the pardon authority. It's total. It's absolute. It's unconditional. What would it mean if he were to fire the special? Oh, well, you're asking me a question that's totally hypothetical. I learned a long time ago you, not to answer a hypothetical These are, these are skilled, this is a skilled politician now, <laughs> giving me the evasion techniques that we have both practiced that's right. uh, over time. Uh, let me move on to some, uh, one other thing, that, uh, an experience we share, which is debates. Oh, yeah. uh, you were involved in negotiating uh, debates over a series of elections and in running debate preparation right. processes. In, in 1980, you persuaded uh, the Reagan team, or you were one of the people who persuaded the Reagan team to accept a debate with President Carter. Reagan was ahead. A lot of people thought he shouldn't debate, didn't know if he could handle uh, the debate. Uh, what was your thinking at that time? Well, we'd just blown away John Anderson. You know, he was a, <coughs> a Republic third-party candidate. And he wanted debates, and uh, and at that time I think we were behind, and Carter didn't take it. He was president, and we took that debate, and and uh, and the Gipper blew him away, uh, he, and he and he has he, he's terrific. Yeah. And uh, these you had an argument though that I thought was interesting. You know, you, there, people there there needs to be strategy. You need to know what you want to get out of these debates. Right. You thought there was something he had to get out of that debate. Reagan in 1980, he was thought of by some as a kind of trigger-happy. Trigger-happy, trigger yeah. yeah, and he had to prove that that wasn't the case, and he did very, very well. There was one uh, moment there uh, where he turned to, the, uh, to President Carter after President Carter launched an uh, attack on him, and he delivered his famous line, there you go again. Yeah. Was that something that you guys rehearsed? Was no. that practiced? no. President Reagan was extraordinarily talented at, at, at quipping, quipping back. You know, the press uh, did not like Reagan's policies one bit, but they could not dislike President Reagan. He was hope. He was opportunity. He was, oh, shucks, you know. And, and, but they didn't like the policies, but they couldn't dislike the president. How important is that for presidents to project an optimistic view of the very, future? I think it's very important. I think it's very important. I mean, Reagan was sort of the happy warrior. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. I know, you, I know you're not going to probably answer this question, but uh, I ask it anyway. Um, Trump has taken a different tact on this. Um, at the end of the day, uh, is it a smart route to take? Well, I don't know what it At the end of the day isn't here yet. We're going to have to wait and see what the end of the day brings. But I would... I would I would point out to you that he's his numbers have moved up. 
in, in recent Interesting, years. since you cut the deal with Pelosi and Schumer and the, since and the hurricanes. The, since he worked with the with Democrats, did a wonderful job on the, on the hurricanes, and empowered John Kelly. Mm -hmm. Those three things. And the numbers are up to 42%. Now, that's not over, you know, it's not big numbers, but it's a hell of a lot better than 34. I was in the White House with Reagan in 82 when he went down to 38. It's not a fun place to be when those are your numbers. And you may, well, you never got there. Your, your numbers stayed higher. We, yeah, we were, we, we touched, we, we touched the low 40s. But, Did you? Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, Last question, another experience that you and I share. Reagan's first debate in 1984 uh, yeah. was kind of a disaster. It was, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was so worried about that, remembering that, that I circled the date in 2012 when President Obama would have to have his first debate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because presidents aren't used to people getting in their grill, questioning them in the way that you do in a debate, while the challenger has been... And they don't like it. They don't like it. No. They don't like it. Uh, when... President Obama got off the podium. I don't think he knew exactly how badly the thing had gone. Mm -hmm. uh, he called me later and said the reviews seemed to be that we didn't have a very good night. I said that appears to be the consensus. <laughs> how did Reagan react when he got off that? Did he know that he hadn't done well? Yes, he, he knew he hadn't done well. And when, they, when, uh, uh, when the press talked to him about it, he said I didn't do a good job. He didn't, he didn't memorize his clothes. If you remember, he was traveling down the, the coast highway to the shining city on the hill when they cut him off. They had to cut him off twice. Mm -hmm. And he just had, didn't, didn't do the work. I felt an enormous amount of pressure, our whole debate team, after that. And there was a lot of anger within the, uh, you know, the White House and, yeah. and yeah. some supporters of the president. Uh, Ron Klain, our debate negotiator, who you know well. I do. Uh, uh, he offered his resignation. You did too. Is that right? That Not on that. No, no, no. What you're thinking of is that after that uh, first debate, there were some in the White House who thought that they needed uh, a whipping boy for it. That, that couldn't be the president. We can't let this be the president. All the president himself said it was my fault. I didn't. He was totally honest. But they wanted me to fire uh, Dick Darman, who had was been in charge, who was my assistant, who had been in charge, and who was an extraordinarily fine public servant and a really bright guy. Uh, and I, and they came to me, Mike Deaver and Stu Spencer, the, who, you know, who Stu was, yeah, sure. political yeah. uh, guru for Ray, for Ford and Reagan, and uh, and said, "You got to let him go." I said, "Well, that's interesting, fellas." I said, "I want to tell you something." I'll fire Dick Darman when the president asked me to fire Dick Darman. I knew damn good and well the president would never ask me mm -hmm. to fire Dick Darman because it wasn't Dick Darman's fault. They said, you brutalized the, pre the president in the preparation for the debate. I said, wait a minute. We prepared him in the very same way we did for the other debates, yeah. which, which he won. So yeah. it became a non-issue. Uh, you know, um, uh, that was the only time, I, Obama's a very confident person. That was the only time I actually saw his confidence shaken. Uh, and Reagan was a superior performer. He was a yeah. professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but look how he bounced back. Yeah. He bounced but how back. did he take it? Did he, was he? What? How did he take it? Was, did well, he, he, he said, I screwed it up from the very beginning. Yeah. He was willing to admit that. Uh, and he did. He didn't do, he didn't, 
he didn't memorize his clothes. He didn't do the work that he'd done before when he when he won all those debates. And then the, and then in the next two debates, he just obliterated Mondale. Yeah, he did. He did. Mr. Secretary, uh, we are both very blessed to have uh, you had the opportunities we've had, and uh, and I feel very fortunate to sit with you. So thank you so much. Well, you're very you're Great very kind, you. David. I enjoyed being with you. Uh, I guess reasonable minds could could uh, question that, but I don't. I think if all the intelligence agencies say that they hacked us, I think they hacked us. And then it's incumbent on the president and the government to, to do something about it to do, proactively. To do something about it. Well, it's incumbent upon uh, all of our governments mm -hmm. to do something about it. We haven't done it. It's also incumbent upon our government to do something about North Korea, and we haven't done anything about that either since 1994. Mm -hmm. So, you um, uh, let's let's go over here to yeah, sure. to, to uh, this map of uh, Germany. Germany. Uh, Germany was divided when you uh, when you took took office. What does this map represent to well, you? Well, this is the United Germany, uh, and President Bush wrote a note up there, Jim, thanks for all your effective work in making this map possible. Uh, I, I, I'm really proud of this because it, I think it was a significant diplomatic achievement. We had a very narrow window of opportunity to unify Germany after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and, uh, and France was against it. And Britain was against it, the Soviet Union was against it, but we nevertheless got it done with cooperation between the United States and Germany, and, uh, and we got it done as a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And it was very, very uh, dicey when we first started talking about it. It was a very sensitive subject, but uh, it's remembered in Germany, I can tell you that. They just had an election. Angela Merkel was re-elected. Yeah. But there was, for the first time, a far-right party that now has taken seats. Uh, and this is happening everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. What do you attribute that to, the rise of the sort of populist, nationalist, xenophobic right? I, I, I really don't know, but it is happening everywhere. If you look at Brexit, I think that's a part of it. Uh, I can't answer. What about... Um, you, you you utilized these international institutions. You were uh, and you've spoken about America's role in the world. What should America's role be uh, in terms of driving uh, diplomatic solutions? Well, I think if you take a take a look at what uh, at, at, at how George H. W. Bush. Uh, led the international community to get. Uh, the unification of Germany accomplished, again, against the initial wishes of France, uh, Britain, and the Soviet Union. That's a good example. Another really good example is what he did to eject Iraq from Kuwait. He said, you know, this is wrong for a big country to brutalize its small neighbor. The occupation was very brutal. He said, we're going to reverse it. And he got the rest of the world together to support him in it, even got a uh, um, resolution authorizing the use of force against a UN member state out of the Security Council of the United Nations. Never been done before and hadn't been done since and won't be done for a long time. Then went and did exactly what he said he was going to do, eject him from Kuwait, that and nothing more, Right. and then came home and guess what? Got other people to pay for it. Now I say that's a textbook example of the way to fight a war. 
Um, you mentioned that he did did that and nothing more. He didn't go in and he didn't topple Saddam no, Hussein. No. Why didn't he go and do Well, that? we got a lot of grief for that for two or three years after, <laughs> after we left office. But we were afraid uh, that what would happen, that what has happened would happen. That it would, uh, that Iraq would fragment and there would be all sorts of ethnic uh, controversies, tensions, and warfare. And that's what you've got now. You've got a Shia-Sunni battle going on there in Iraq. Kurds are involved, but peripherally. But Iraq is really sort of breaking up into three, three different states. We were worried about that. Furthermore, our military didn't want any part of going in and occupying that great big Arab country. And when we got all the other countries to sign on to a use of force resolution in the Security Council, we told them that wasn't our objective. Regime change wasn't our objective. We were going to kick Iraq out of Kuwait. Would we be in a better position now if we hadn't gone in and toppled Saddam? No, I don't think so. Well, I don't know. That's very speculative, and I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we used, you know, we work with Saddam. When I first became Secretary of State, uh, we got him agricultural credits. We gave him intelligence against Iran and his war against Iran. We were trying to bring him into the community of international, responsible international nations. We weren't successful. He was a brutal tyrant. So uh, it's hard to, to say the Iraqi people would be better off with Saddam. I'm saying the Ameri I'm talking about the American people. Well. I don't know. We, uh, there, Iran is now the most important country in Iraq, other than Iraq, not the United States. We have a great big, big embassy we built there, but Iran's the most important. Last question on this. Um, uh, diplomacy has been sort of tarnished in the eyes of some. President's proposed a 30% cut in the State Department. General Mattis says if you cut the State Department, you've got to buy me more bullets. You, you buy that? <laughs> I do buy that. Yeah, I do buy that. But I, but on the other hand, I also uh, support the idea that the State Department can use some reforming, just like the UN. I mean, they're both great big bureaucracy. There's plenty of room for reform. I don't know that I can't pass on the extent or degree of the percentage cut. How's you? you you're friendly with uh, Secretary Tillerson, yeah. uh, fellow Texan. Uh, how how do, do you think? Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. 